A few months ago, if you had asked anyone in information security to cite an example of an effective critical infrastructure hack by a remote criminal hacker, they might have mentioned the attack on the water treatment plant in Old Smar, Florida. This happened days before the Super Bowl and got a lot of attention. Here's the CBS Morning News. A hacking attack on a water treatment plant is raising big questions about the vulnerability of critical facilities nationwide. Federal investigators are searching for a hacker who tried to poison the Oldsmar, Florida water system on Friday, just 15 miles from the Super Bowl, right before the big game. Officials say the intruder broke into the water treatment controls for about five minutes. As Jeff Pegues reports, the intent was to add too much of a dangerous chemical. This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri says a water treatment plant operator first noticed the remote access hack. The bad actor increased the amount of sodium hydroxide or lye in the water supply from 100 parts per million to more than 11,000. The public was never in danger. It would have taken between 24 and 36 hours for that water to hit the water supply system. For the 15,000 residents of Oldsmar, Florida, the increase of sodium hydroxide in the water supply could have caused vomiting, chest and abdominal pain. This type of activity and this type of hacking of critical infrastructure is not necessarily limited to just water supply systems. It can be anything. It's a scary scenario. However, the final FBI report, which only recently came out, found that it was an employee that was responsible for the elevated levels of sodium hydroxide in the water. And as we heard in the previous episode of Error Code, attacks on the power grid are also few and far between. But that doesn't mean that threats don't exist. They do. This, then, is a story about researchers who are monitoring the threats against IoT and OT systems and the steps that are being taken to mitigate them. I'm Robert Vimosi. This is Error Code. My name is uh, Ismael Valenzuela, and I'm the Vice President of the Threat Research and Intelligence Team at BlackBerry. BlackBerry, as a company, is no longer making mobile phones. They've pivoted to become a cybersecurity company with a strong IoT division. So why is it that people still don't know that? You know, that's a very good question. And I have to say that a lot of people would say the same thing, right? Oh, we love the phones. And I was one of those fans that had lots of Blackberries over the years. And that I still miss them too, but uh, BlackBerry is no longer in these uh, uh, in the phone uh, market or industry. Uh, we are a cybersecurity and uh, IoT um, uh, company, and that's when you think about it. It's uh, we are the intersection of of that, which is fascinating, right? Uh, we're not just protecting a phone; we're protecting all the devices that we're using and that we'll be using in the in the future. This conversation will be focusing around threats against IoT and OT systems, some of them used in critical infrastructure. Yes, so we uh, are part of the cybersecurity unit, and within the threat research and, and intelligence team, well, you know, you, we do exactly that, like researching the threats, monitoring what's happening out there in the world, and uh, trying to understand what those threats mean to different organizations in different locations, different industries. And more importantly, trying to translate that into uh, what we call actionable countermeasures or in a less maybe technical way, just a defensive strategy. 
Ismail is the principal author of the BlackBerry Cybersecurity Global Threat Intelligence Report. And yeah, almost every company issues a threat report these days. But as we stated earlier, BlackBerry is now an IoT and OT security company. Within the report, there was mention that Mac OS is not necessarily safer than Windows OS. The idea that there's no malware on Mac OS devices, well, this is a myth. This is a marketing myth that came out of Apple. The report found, for example, that Dock to Master is the most seen threat on Mac OS. According to the report, Dock to Master surreptitiously injects ads directly into web pages and collects user and system data to sell back to the underground market. BlackBerry researchers noted a whopping 34% of the client organizations using macOS actually had Dock2 Master on their network, and it was found in 26% of their devices. I recorded this interview a few weeks before the annual RSAC conference in San Francisco. I will be at RSA together with uh, Dmitry Vestrushev, who is our uh, senior director for uh, the threat intelligence team at BlackBerry, and we're going to be doing a talk on macOS threats. So we'll be talking about the uh, threats that we see coming from nation states or the APTs, and also uh, threats from uh, more like common cyber crimeware. What we say in the report is that there is no safe platform, right? Now, safer or not, it's we would have to look at data. And, and what the data says is that there's less attacks on macOS in comparison to you know Windows, or even in comparison to Linux, which is getting a lot more attacks, uh, especially because we use it a lot in cloud and you know OT environments or IT devices. So yes, in in general, you could say there is less attacks against macOS, but does it mean that it's a safer platform? Well, what it means is that there is less footprint in corporate environments. Okay, so this is interesting. So macOS isn't necessarily safer; it's just not present in many corporate environments. Here's something that attackers know. Typically, when I target a, uh, I send a phishing campaign, right? Somebody clicks on something, downloads a trojanized software, um, and you infect one machine, typically the data you're looking for is not in that system, right? You need to do some discovery, find out who's got the, the keys to the kingdom, who's got the, uh, uh, you know, the crown jewels, where the data that I need, that I want to exfiltrate is. That means pivoting, right? What we say lateral movement or pivoting. Uh, pivoting off a Mac OS device is, is a lot harder because these are systems that are designed to use by a professional, right? Somebody that is working on a project, uh, developers, um, uh, graphical designers, but they're not necessarily uh, designed as Windows to work in a corporate environment where there is easy communications. That's why attackers are just focusing on Windows because it's easier to pivot and go to the servers, the file servers, the systems that has the data that uh, attackers are interested in. However, having said that, we see more and more Mac malware. To continue with Mac OS, the report also noted that BlackBerry has seen an increased use of Golang to target Mac OS systems as part of a wider cross-platform attack against multiple systems for opportunist attacks. To operate efficiently on multiple platforms, these attacks rely on simple functions that exist across all the platforms. In reality, what we see is not that sophisticated or complex. It's mostly spyware, adware. Uh, we're talking to report about proxy malware. So uh, um, malware that will 
proxy communication. So we will set up as a local proxy in your machine. So when you're connecting to a website, it's decrypting the data, right? And looking at those secrets, could be usernames, passwords, you know, cookies, anything that can be uh, used by the attacker to steal that data. So essentially, info stealers, what we call info stealers, right? Um, that are trying to capture credentials to use them to steal more data. What I want to focus on is the IoT and OT threats. We are obviously in a lot of uh, OT environments, and uh, that could be, uh, you know, ranging from uh, medical devices to, uh, you know, military uh, um, equipment uh, to a lot of other industries that make, uh, you know, use of uh, systems that communicate with with each other. And as I, you know, guess we're going to get into into some of that. Uh, when you think about it, um, everything is designed to be connected in some way. So we cannot just like uh, focus on one or two use cases. If we really want to ensure that security is embedded into everything we do, we need to look at not just devices, but more importantly, the, the data. I think that's where the focus should, should be. So attacks going after environments is interesting. It seems to not matter what the devices are that are there. It's the overall environment. This type of reframing is important, I think. One of the things I, I like to highlight since we're talking about vulnerabilities, threats, I think this field has been very focused on vulnerability, patching, right? And, and unfortunately, it's it's something we still have to do, right? It's, it's the boring piece. Attackers, they still leverage vulnerabilities that haven't been patched. We see this on a, on a daily basis. But it's not enough, right? Sometimes we call this uh, cyber hygiene or, you know, best practices. Uh, that's like the bare minimum, but it's not, it's not enough. And what that means is that security leaders, you know, those who are listening to, to us, they should think about how to effectively manage risk. I don't know why, but I always have to step back and think about risk as a separate thing. In security, it means that we identify, assess, and implement security controls in our systems and applications to stop threats. Well, how do we do that? We look at the threat landscape. And we identify what are the likely threats and then arrive at what are our risks and plan accordingly. Even then, it's a ballpark estimate. Actual mileage will vary. We cannot address every single risk. We cannot eliminate threats. It's the same thing as in the physical world, right? You walk out of the street, out of your house every morning, you get in the car or you go for a walk and we, we do this intu uh, intuitively without thinking too much about it. But in the back of our head, we're always thinking, right, about the weather or about uh, any other event that could create, you know, harm to us or to our families. And we're making decisions based based on that. It may not be perfect, but we always try to mitigate, you know, that that risk. Again, risk is a fascinating subtopic because almost everyone has a different level of risk. For some, it's innate, born out of evolution. We have the sixth sense that we know not to go in that dark cave or down that dark alley. And for some, it's born out of personal experience. I had a bad time in Cancun. Therefore, I don't risk going back to Cancun. Same thing. Organizations cannot just like say, you know what? I have a firewall. I have an antivirus. I have this. I have that. I have a training program. I am good. How do you know? Do you know what are the threats that are applicable to your organization, in your region, in your industry. If you're in Latin America, you're conducting business in Ecuador or in Mexico, you're subject to very different type of threats than if you are conducting business in Southeast Asia. 
or if you are you know a hospital in the US or a government agency in Europe completely different yes there are micro things that we see all over the world but uh, each region and each industry have their own their own threats so i think that uh you know security leaders business leaders they need to start thinking about how this affects operations uh because at the end of the day as this I hate to say this threat landscape because it sounds like a cliche, right? But, <laughs> but that's that's where it's happening. Uh, as the world is getting more complex, um, uh, businesses will have to make decisions based on this to to uh, to survive. Operational technology (OT) these are devices that may not be connected to the internet. They're the conveyor belts, the elevators, the mechanical operations that are necessary, say, in a manufacturing environment. Bad actors can get at you from the inside. There are internal and external threats that are present all the time. It could be somebody that's already working in that organization that may want to cause damage. They may want to, you know, get patient data. Uh, it could be somebody that I was having this conversation with a, a, a colleague recently. You know, went to the doctor's office and uh, you know they're doing some tests and they they walk out of the room. There's a computer there. It's unlocked. And I, I, I can I can insert the USB drive. Actually, we talk about that in the next report. We still see this type of physical attacks, right? Non-sophisticated, just a USB drive, inserting that. Um, so at the end of the day, what attackers are going is anything that can give them some advantage. And this could be going after you know uh, uh, systems to hold them hostage and the typical ransomware attack. Or it could be what we see as a new trend uh, in cyber criminals, just exfiltrating all the data that may have value to an organization. In case of healthcare, you know, patient data is definitely the the, the gold uh, there, and then selling this data in the um, uh, dark web, or demanding a ransom in exchange of you know sending that data back to to you. If you just put everything behind a firewall, you're good, right? No. In some cases, I mean, in most cases, these devices are not exposed to the internet directly. Uh, so uh, they're going to be behind some sort of a, a perimeter. But, uh, you know, we think about attackers as the the, the espionage, the uh, threat actors in, you know, the nation states, the so-called APTs, people that is outside of the network. And, and we have to start thinking that attackers that are inside of the network of these organizations. So a lot of the Traditional design has relied on, oh, this is safe. It's behind the firewall. Do not encrypt the communications. Or this has default credentials. Yeah, who cares? It's behind the firewall. It's safe. So I was curious to see how the Cybersecurity Global Threat Intelligence Report was different from other reports. One thing I noticed, it only covers about 90 days worth of data from September to the end of November 2022. I also noticed the lack of naming of groups behind the malware. Yes, we, uh, we 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 try to be careful with not calling out a specific, uh, uh, you know, who's the specific government or the specific actor behind something. So as you know, uh, we uh, all the threat intelligence uh, groups, we uh, threat research groups, we just give these these names. We have obviously, you know, some suspicions of uh, uh, who is behind this based on our, our knowledge of the space. Often with state actors, we're limited to thinking about the usual suspects. China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. But there are other equally powerful state actors in the world. But what we see, for example, Latin America, uh, this is what you're referring to, 
spionage against specific people, specific uh, high-value targets. It's something we see all over the world. Um, uh, you know, uh, targeting a specific uh, diplomat that is traveling, that's going to a conference, uh, targeting a, a politician that is, um, you know, that has a specific agenda. Uh, this is what governments have done since, well, forever, right? I'm thinking back in the Cold Cold War, it was done with, you know, radios and microwaves, like spying on each other. Today is done through, you know, uh, in the underground of the internet. Uh, but that's where we see a lot of the, not just endpoint malware, a traditional malware, but also spionage kits, uh, root kits, you know, things like the Pegasus that we have seen across many different governments. Sometimes it's interesting. We're seeing one country within a, a, a particular government. We see three, four, five different groups. And sometimes they're not uh, uh, from outside the country. Sometimes these are like, you know, uh, uh, political parties, uh, all the people that they just have some interest, spying on journalists, spying on politicians, and they're all within the same country and they're spying on each other. And this gets reflected in the in the cyber cyber world. In information security, I feel that South America doesn't get mentioned as much as it should. Brazil has a very active group of hackers, both legit and criminal. Yes, and actually, it's, it's one of our uh, areas of interest. Uh, we have uh, researchers uh, that live in the region as well, because it's you have to do it that way, right? It's not just about reading the news and understanding what's what's going on in the country, but also having the people that understand the culture that live there on a daily basis, and they are not just really skilled threat researchers from a technical perspective, but also uh, we call them, you know, intelligence analysts because they can translate the geopolitical situation into a cyber threat and what it means. So yes, we see uh, Brazil has always been a very active um, uh, country in in terms of uh, you know cyber criminal activity. But we also uh, we did a report recently that we presented at a security conference in in Spain talking about uh, you know the link between uh, all of these different attacks in Latin America. And and we see a lot of activity related to uh, again the geopolitics, um, dissidents, journalists are being targeted, specific people in the governments that are um, they get uh, 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 these espionage kits on their phones to look at communications. Uh, we see uh, the support of uh, other countries outside of Latin America, like sometimes you know North Korea, uh, Russia, Iran. Uh, we also see how some actors are. Um, getting paid to create like fake profiles to to generate some some type of uh, opinion in in social media, this type of manipulation, right? So it's not just all about espionage, and it's also about manipulation of the information. And this activity in Latin America, it extends to other parts of the world as well. Uh, we, we live in a very connected world, uh, which at the same time is super fragmented. It's getting more fragmented than ever, right? With all of these political tensions between. Uh, the, the the east and the and the west, but uh, but yeah, we we uh, we, we know that obviously the United States have uh, a vested interest in in Latin America, and so uh, have other other countries uh, as well. So we 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 see this reflected in in these type of attacks, and and if you follow the news, whenever there's been like uh, some type of a revolt, like in Venezuela or uh, in Ecuador. And this gets reflected in the in, in, in the cyber 
world in the form of attacks or in the form of, of as I said before, manipulation of information. So the types of attacks that we're seeing are as varied as the motivations. And, and I think this is important because I see a lot of uh, people out there thinking, well, you know, threat intelligence, this is, you know, we call it IOCs, indicators of compromise, IPs, hashes, domains. No, that's the lowest level of that. Threat intelligence is knowing that, look, if you are a business that is uh, conducting uh, operations or business in Southeast Asia, in Taiwan, for example, you need to know what's happening right now because there's a lot of interesting things happening. A lot of different countries, you know, governments trying to do espionage in this in this uh, uh, region. Actually, a few weeks ago, we found out a specific piece of malware. Uh, it was a, a Trojan that we saw in a Taiwanese manufacturing plant that had geofencing. So what this means is that this malware would only work, would only communicate if it was in a specific region, specific place. And it was designed to steal, you know, information out of this organization. Okay, there's somebody that has a clear motivation on that. So if you're in the manufacturing business, <laughs> you need to know about these things because that data can end up being in, in the hands of your competitor. Or you may, you know, find that a government is using this information for, uh, uh, you know, some type of uh, thing or reason that could impact your business at the end of the day. So within the report, I also saw that there's 62 new malicious samples being seen per hour. That's roughly one a minute. To put that into some context, I'm curious whether Ismail is seeing more malware threats this year than last year. I mean, is the trend going up? Should we be worried? Well, I, I will give you, uh, you know, statistics and numbers, sometimes they can be, can be deceiving, right? It can be interpreted in many different ways. We see a lot more automation uh, being used by attackers. And in the same way that, and, and, and I don't know in your program, you've talked about ChatGPT before, uh, right? So without having to, to go down that rabbit hole, but it's obvious that attackers, as I usually say, attackers are lazy <laughs> in the same way that we are. If I can get something, if I can get my work, my task done in less time, why wouldn't I do that, right? Using the tools that I have. So yes, attackers are doing this for that reason. It takes less time. And also because there's still many organizations out there they defend based on you know a hash or a fingerprint of a particular malware oh i've seen x therefore i will block x uh, that doesn't work anymore uh, and attackers know this and that's why they generate so many samples but to give you a a, a sneak a peek or preview of what we're, we'll be publishing in our next report uh, we we see definitely an increase in uh, quarter over quarter we have seen an increase of uh, sometimes up to 12 uh, times the number of uh, new distinct samples that we see targeting customers on a daily basis. What we do from the from uh, our threat intelligence threat research side is, as I told you before, like monitoring what's happening. And then a lot of that intelligence gets built into the products. So all of these products benefit from the research that we do. So for example, we use AI-driven uh, products and that allows us to you know, block preemptively, anticipate what attackers are, are doing. That's the best definition of intelligence, really. This is an interesting statement. At RSAC this year, companies were falling over themselves to announce AI for their cybersecurity systems. In many cases, it's just glorified machine learning. It's marketing-led AI. 
There's no clear definition of what we mean when we say artificial intelligence in cybersecurity. It's the art of taking the adversary by surprise, or as a defender, not being taken by surprise by the attacker. So that's what we try to do with our AI technology. Uh, so if there's a new malware sample that we haven't even seen yet, it's something new. Uh, we have those uh, machine learning models that have been trained in a way that, okay, we know that this is malicious based on anomalous behavior, we're gonna block it. Then we have services on top of that. So for example, managed uh, detection and, and response or you know, managed uh, extended detection and response. The idea is that you can you can never take the human element out of the equation. Hmm. So the human is still there making decisions. But what I'm hearing is that there is some benefit to using AI. Yes, AI is great. Uh, you know, we have uh, obviously, and we're going to see a lot more advancements in the application of AI to to cybersecurity. But there's always something that humans have, and it is not only creativity, but also the ability to understand context. What does this mean to my organization today? Right, we're going through you know the publication of our uh, quarterly results. We are you know in the middle of uh, working with this important project with the government. Uh, you know, my CFO is visiting uh, uh, you know this country, and that's why we see this. That context, yes, it can be eventually you know uh, provided by machines, but a human needs to make a decision based on that. And sometimes that decision affects the life of other people. And, you know, that's why I always say I may want to drive an autonomous car, but if I have, if I run uh, into an accident, hopefully not, I will, I want to be assisted by a human, maybe assisted by a drone or something like that too, right? But I, I like to think about uh, humans being augmented by AI and, and, and humans, you know, feeding that, that loop, but this, there has to be a human in the loop. So if you have AI services and they flag a problem, how do you mitigate a vulnerable OT system? How do you protect it from an attack when there's no internet connectivity to the device in the field? Well, that's where the human element is so important. And um, I think uh, we definitely have a lot of technology today, but just the most basic form of instant response, which is like having a, a short list of uh, people with phone numbers to call, right? And say, hey, look at this, that still works. And uh, many organizations actually have found that uh, obviously since the pandemic with COVID, a lot more remote work has been happening, right? People working from home and all of this. Some of this instant response that was very well rehearsed or let's say, uh, you know, uh, more effectively managed when people were in the office, now it's a bit more difficult because people cannot get hold of people. And, and yes, we use email, we use, uh, but what what if you know there is no internet? Um, what if your uh, system has uh, been ransomed and you cannot use it? You have to have that, you know, a backup. And sometimes traditional mechanisms are still effective when it comes to, to doing incident response. Another difference with OT is right there. Devices out in the field without connectivity. Sometimes that means it's deep within an urban core, such as within a mass transit system. I live uh, here close to the city of New York. I've done a lot of work in the city of New York. Uh, for example, with uh, uh, my, my team was responsible for a lot of the security in the subway. And uh, uh, we're talking about places that have difficult physical access. <laughs> 
So when you design uh, cybersecurity defenses for these, you have to be very, very aware of that. What's the cost of going and replacing something, you know, underground? Uh, when you have like hundreds of uh, subway stations. Another infrastructure that is vulnerable to attacks is healthcare. The diversity of devices within a healthcare organization is astounding. The BlackBerry report mentions that healthcare continues to be target of ugly ransomware situations. I mean, really, if your network is shut down because of ransomware and you have to postpone surgeries or turn patients in need of care away, that's bad. I did a lot of work out of the the, the city of New York as well, which is you know critical infrastructure. Uh, when you have like um, 20, 27 public hospitals across the city, and there is a ransomware right, or an incident like that, it could affect the systems that are providing uh, 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 critical care to to patients, to humans that could you know potentially die if you don't do something with that. That's um, that's that's the scary part about about this, and you know thankfully. I think that uh, the people managing these environments are a lot more conscientious. Governments are also issuing uh, directives and and you know pushing the, the the ball in the right in the right direction. Obviously, there's still a lot to do. In the United States, there's the Patch Act, which puts pressure back on the vendor to keep their medical devices up to date. And in the next episode of Aerocode, I'll be talking with Josh Corman about that. Yeah, no, it's for example, if you look at an X-ray machine, typically what gets attacked is not the, the the medical device itself with the embedded system, but typically what gets attacked is the system that controls that. Which in many cases, it's a it's an old version of Windows that hasn't been updated in the last seven years, because as you say, I cannot just go and say, oh. This is uh, unpatched. This is Windows XP. Let me just upgrade it to Windows 11. <laughs> no, because you have to change the whole thing. And, and in some cases, an X-ray machine could be worth, what, a million dollars or, or more? Um, so that's not something that is easily going to, to happen. Uh, that's part of the challenge that we have in OT manufacturing and healthcare environments. That Some of these devices are running very old um uh, operating systems that cannot be cannot be patched. So, so two things that I think are important there is you know this whole philosophy of zero trust, uh, uh, you know, implementing less implicit trust, thinking that the attacker is also in the environment, right? That there's no internal and external threats, that there are always threats around you, and also something that uh, I think is becoming more popular now, uh, doing product security testing, uh, which. Um, um, I, I see now more and more organizations saying, you know what, we, we need to create our own product security testing team. If an attacker is on the network, uh, what what could be the vulnerabilities that they could exploit or misconfigurations? It's not just about vulnerabilities, right? A misconfiguration or is there any proprietary protocol uh, between these medical devices, between these manufacturing devices that we see communicated on the network? Is this exposing sensitive data? That could, you know, expose something or could give an attacker that's on the network further access. Again, we have various devices that we're talking to within the healthcare system. You know, uh, in the last, uh, in the next report we'll be publishing that we're, you know, reviewing right now, uh, we're going to be continuing talking about healthcare, for example, and we see a lot more attacks going after healthcare environments than financial environments, which. It's very telling, right? Um, attackers are going after impact. 
at the end of the day. And it also indicates that, you know, financial organizations, they typically have larger budgets. They have been working in cybersecurity for a long time in, in you know, building a solid defense. Doesn't mm. mean they don't get impacted, but attackers also know that healthcare environments are a lot more unprotected. And industrial environments are another example of that. Uh, so in the next report, we actually talk about energy sector manufacturing. So yes, we, we see a lot more attacks going after OT environments. Typically, they do not attack OT environments directly. They go after the IT environment, which is easier. And then from there, jump into uh, uh, the OT environment or you know any sort of uh, you know IoT device that could be accessible from there. The good news is, is that steps are being taken. Well, so FDA is pushing now uh, medical manufacturers to to do this type of testing themselves, right, and create their own threat models and ensure that once the uh, the product is out there in in the hands of the you know the hospitals, the the, the, the clinicians, that this this is secure. But I think that uh, there's never enough testing, right? Um, and uh, I see more organizations, government agencies. Um, I think you know hospitals down the line. I think they, they probably don't have maybe the resources to do that now, but they're, they're thinking on on doing these type of things, maybe with the help of uh, third parties, and and we get more inquiries about these type of uh, services, which uh, definitely uh, brings a lot of value because. You're not just looking for vulnerabilities. You're also looking for ways in which uh, a misconfiguration, sometimes you know, the software we use could react in, in many different ways depending on what configuration you, you apply. And that's, that can create uh, an opportunity for, for an attacker to, to leverage that. Often discussions around threats and risk are focused on what can go wrong. Well, it's important to think and plan, but it's also important to step back and recognize some of the progress we've made. And, and the thing that is positive, I don't want to just you know talk about doom and, and gloom, but the thing that is positive is that we see a lot more collaboration between public and private organizations, between governments, sharing information, law enforcement. I mean, as a commercial organization, so much we can do, but we cannot go and some people say, why don't you go and punch adversaries in the face? You know, we would love to do that, but we can't. That's not our job. That's law enforcement job, right? And what we do is we collaborate with them to take over a command and control infrastructure to expose, you know, these criminals behind these uh, 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 masks, right? And uh, and that's been successful. We see a lot, a lot more indictments, you know, prosecution, uh, uh, infrastructure being taken over, and, and I think that's the the right uh, the right way of of doing this. In the United States, the National Cybersecurity Strategy just came out with more emphasis on IoT and OT security. And I talk about this in Error Code episode twelve. I'm wondering though if there are other countries that are doing similar strategies with OT, or if it's ever going to get to the point where it bubbles up to a consortium of countries that maybe band together in sort of a NATO of cybersecurity for IoT and OT. The European uh, Union uh, recently well, issued some new directives. Uh, the uh, uh, government of Australia, uh, same thing, Canada. Uh, these, you know, uh, these governments all over the world, they're, they're, they're issuing these type of uh, directives. But as I said earlier, we're never going to get rid of this. As long as there is an attacker that has a motivation, that has some intent, 
And in many cases, some of these attacks are also governments, as we know, right? They're behind this. Uh, but also cyber criminals, because there's money involved, uh, because it's a business. As long as there is motivation, intent, and resources, there's always going to be some, you know, cyber threats that could cause an impact to, to our organizations. However, yes, we we want to protect citizens too, right? We want to protect critical infrastructure, our hospitals, our schools, and that requires that type of public-private collaboration. And and across countries, we we already share information with a lot of uh, national uh, security agencies, not just in the U.S. but but uh, you know across the the world. Uh, we are collaborating in an investigation with law enforcement right now, uh, sharing information with with them, and they share information with us. This this type of um, collaborations across countries within the country, uh, they're definitely helping to to mitigate the impact. The good news is, with all this sharing, there's the MITRE ATT&CK framework. What it does is it creates a common language for discussing tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs. When ATT&CK first came out, it seemed like a great table exercise. I wondered if it's becoming baked in now. Absolutely. I think at this point, everybody knows, right, under unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, that <laughs> what MITRE ATT&CK is. And, and I think it's a great contribution to the community because it, what it created is a common language. It's like the Wikipedia of attackers' behaviors. And that is super important because we can not advance in this uh, world where there's so many different attackers that are motivated, so many interests, so many... Uh, so much, uh, uh, um, uh, so many mo- different motivations for attacking an organization. We cannot make progress in this world without information sharing, and we cannot share information unless we have a common language. Right? Like right now, we're talking English, but we can talk Spanish if you want. <laughs> but uh, but you know, if you don't know Spanish, it's going to be hard for you, right, to follow all my conversations. So that's what MITRE ATT&CK is doing, just, cre- just creating that common language that vendors we use, but also customers can use to ask you know, questions to, to uh, advance in their program. And that's, for example, we see that reflected in, in the cyber uh, world. The tactics, their behaviors also change. I'm also wondering what type of feedback Ismail gets with a report like this. It's funny. Uh, the, the threat actors that we expose in our reports, they also re- uh, read our reports. <laughs> How do we know this? Because after we expose them, the activity stops for some time. It pauses. Now they're reading that report and saying, you know what? Oh, man, we made a mistake here. See, I told you, you should have done this. <laughs> right? Let's change it. And they may go silent for maybe a number of weeks or a number of months while they come up with a new weapon or a new way of doing something. And then, you know, we see that activity again. Um, so so that's what we can do. That's our mission to 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 help protect customers by... You know, exposing these and making sure they have the defensive mechanisms to mitigate the risk. I'd like to thank Ismail Valenzuela for coming on the show and talking about BlackBerry's most recent cybersecurity threat intelligence report with the attention on IoT and OT systems. It's a brave new world out there in terms of risk and threats, and it's good to see that for the moment, the good people, they're winning. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like Narrative Information Security podcasts. 
And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. And coming up, I've got some great episodes talking about IoT, of course, and also a deep dive into the Patch Act and how it's affecting the medical device industry. I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss out.